Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Well, I grew up in Houston, Texas in the 60s and in the 70s, and I was a diehard Houston Oiler fan. And as such, I hated the Pittsburgh Steelers because they were the ones that always seemed to keep us from going to the Super Bowl. But in recent years, I've become somewhat of a a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, in part because of their quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger. I don't know if you know his story, but he grew up in a Christian home, but uh, never really embraced the faith in his heart. And he Uh, went to college and uh, was a highly acclaimed athlete, had no real interest in the Lord, Uh, became a high draft pick of the Steelers. And in 2004, he was voted Rookie of the Year in the NFL. Uh, He went to the Pro Bowl several times in his first five years. He'd been to two Super Bowls. I mean, uh, he had it all, money and acclaim and fame and admiration. And yet Ben Roethlisberger knew there was something empty on the inside. And so he turned back to look at the faith with which he had grown up and he embraced Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And when he did, when he was born again, he found that what money and fame and, and all of the admiration and awards and Super Bowl trophies and MVPs and all of that kind of stuff could not give him Jesus Christ fulfilled in his heart. And today he is uh, active not only in the pregame chapel of the Pittsburgh Steelers, he and his wife and children are active in their local church and even in a small group in their church. His faith is real. He was born again. And he's a great example, one of many thousands uh, who illustrate our big idea for today's message. There is a hole in every human heart that only God's love can fill. Only God's love can fill. We're in a sermon series this Christmas season entitled Delivered. It's our theme for the entire Christmas season as we rejoice that the gift that was delivered to us that first Christmas was the gift of God's love, the Savior, and we celebrate that with all our heart. And in this series, we're looking back into John's gospel. And John's gospel is different from the other three in that it was written later. It was written by the Apostle John more than 50 years after what he wrote about had taken place, more than a half century after he had walked with Jesus and heard his voice and came to know him as God incarnate walking upon the planet that he created And John had spent this half century remembering these things and pondering these things and meditating on these things and remembering with with such detail the time that he spent with Jesus on earth. And he had come to agree with the Apostle Paul when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15, Thank God for this gift too wonderful for words. And the Greek word translated there 
that's the only time it's used in the entire scripture. It's translated in, in other English versions as this indescribable gift. God's indescribable gift to us. And we've been unpacking that in this series. Week one, we talked about God's gift of grace. And then last week, we looked at God's gift of truth. And next week, Pastor Jesse will conclude the series as he'll be looking at God's gift of hope in that last Sunday of the year. But today, this is my favorite. I've been waiting for it. Today is God's gift of love. God's gift of love. And we'll be looking into a passage in which we find the best known and most loved verse in all the Bible. And in our passion for that verse that is sometimes called the gospel in a nutshell, I'm afraid sometimes we almost overlook that in John 3, it's the story of an extraordinary man who had an overwhelming need that he didn't even realize fully that he had. So would you go with me, please, to John chapter 3? If you have your own copies of the Scripture, I encourage you, as always, to follow along. I'll be teaching, as I always do, from the New Living Translation, and the verses will be on the screen if you'd like to follow that way. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Now, I don't want us to pass over that too quickly. He was a Pharisee. He was a man of prestige and power and position. And as a Pharisee, he was used to being the most important man in the room, in whatever room he went into. But he would not be today when he encounters Jesus. Verse 2, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. After dark. Why after dark? Because he was coming to Jesus in secrecy. Jesus was hated by the Pharisees. He was being plotted against by the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. And so for him to go meet with Jesus was a great risk at great possible cost. And yet he did. And so that night... He encounters Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, what's, what's happening here? Nicodemus is making small talk. Nicodemus is setting the discussion agenda for the meeting. He is taking control of the conversation. But Jesus looked into his heart, and Jesus cut right to the chase. Verse 3, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. I believe he looked him right in the eyes. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And in that moment, Nicodemus was stunned because in that moment, he realized this meeting was not about Jesus, it was about him. And Jesus 
looked into Nicodemus' soul and he pulled it out into the open and exposed it for what it really was. And I believe that Nicodemus was back on his heels. This highly educated, this honored Pharisee, this eloquent, articulate, educated man could only stammer out a stumbling response. Verse 4, well, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? William Barclay, in his classic commentary, has great insight as to what was going on in Nicodemus' mind, I believe, in that moment. Listen to Barclay's words, quote, There's more to Nicodemus' answer than shock and bewilderment. In his heart, there was a great unsatisfied longing. It was as if, he said, with infinite wistful yearning, you talk about being born anew, you talk about this radical fundamental change that is so necessary, but in my experience, that's impossible. There is nothing I would like more, but you might as well tell me, a full-grown man, to enter into my mother's womb and be born all over again. It's not the desirability of this change that Nicodemus questioned, that he knew only too well. It was the possibility. Nicodemus is up against the eternal problem, the problem of the man who wants to be changed but cannot change himself. Mm. And so to drive it home into the heart and mind of Nicodemus, Jesus says this, verse 5, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God, especially for a Pharisee. This brought onto center stage the most important question of his life how to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What did he mean? Was Jesus talking about baptism, as many have speculated through the years? Uh, Water in Scripture is often a symbol of cleansing. Was he somehow talking about that? I, I think my personal philosophy of biblical interpretation is most often the simplest and most obvious interpretation is the correct interpretation. Sometimes biblical scholars and commentators and we preachers overthink things. Are you with me? And we try to make it more complicated than it is. I think if we want to know what Jesus was talking about, all we need to do is look at the next statement Jesus made in verse 6. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. I think there's a parallel. Water, spirit, Human birth, spiritual birth. Jesus was saying this, I believe. You all have a human birth. That's not enough. You need a spiritual birth. 
a spiritual birth. And just to make sure he didn't miss it, Jesus says it again in verse 7. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Nicodemus still didn't understand. And so Jesus, in this next verse, tries to explain a spiritual truth to him in something that really cannot be described or explained in metaphysical terms. But Jesus, the master teacher, puts it so powerfully. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Now, as I envision this this conversation, I think Nicodemus is still staring at Jesus with what we would call a deer-in-the-headlights look. He still can't grasp it. And he says in verse 9 to Jesus, How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. You see, here's what I think. Nicodemus was bewildered because I think Nicodemus, though he was a Pharisee, he could have been an engineer. I think he was one of those guys that had to understand how things worked before he could really embrace it. You know people like that? They they need to know how things work. And so he, as a Pharisee, the expert in Jewish religious law, is trying to figure out how that could fit together. And he couldn't figure out the new birth. Why? Because it wasn't a human work. It wasn't a religious work. He had not yet grasped God's redemptive plan through the sending of his son. He had not yet understood it was a miracle of God. It was a miracle of love. Cindy and I had a conversation with a a sweet Jewish friend of ours, a lady that that we know, and uh, sometimes faith works its way into our conversations. And uh, she was talking to us, and, and she, she said something that really, uh, I didn't quite catch it, but Cindy did, and, and it, it really was stunning as she was talking about her Jewish faith. She said, uh, you know, we don't believe in grace. And she looked at us, and and not really understanding our faith, she said, do you believe in grace? And Cindy responded so well to her, she said, oh, yes. Grace is the foundation of our faith. And we were talking later that what she said really was one of the most tragic statements we'd ever heard. We don't believe in grace. And we thought, if you don't have grace, what's left? The law. It's the law. All you have, all she has as a Jew are the the rituals and the regulations and the observances of Judaism. Not only is that all she had, that's all Nicodemus had. And so he didn't understand. And so Jesus says to him, boy, don't miss this. Verse 10, Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. 
By the way, it's interesting in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read those who are, and they tell me that in the Greek, in this verse, the word A, you are a respected Jewish leader, is not really A, it's the definite article, the. And so what it literally says, you are the respected Jewish leader. I think it's quite likely that Jesus was saying, listen, you're the most respected Jewish teacher of this day. I think he's saying you're head and shoulders above any other Pharisee understanding the Jewish religious laws and rituals and observances, and you don't understand that all of those things were just symbols and preparation for the one who would come, the one who is standing before you today. You see, Nicodemus was intellectually overloaded with religious knowledge, but he was spiritually barren in regard to a personal relationship with God through faith. He had a hole in his heart. And can I just stop and and be a little personal here at this point in the sermon? Could that possibly describe any of you? Could it possibly describe you or somebody watching online? Because you know it is possible today to be intellectually, religiously overloaded with with religious knowledge and yet barren of a personal relationship by being born again. You can be so steeped in Baptist tradition or Catholic theology or Lutheran this or whatever label you might want to name. You can know all of those things. You can grow up with it like Ben Roethlisberger did, but not yet know Jesus by being born again. And so my question to you is not, are you Baptist today? I think every Christian ought to be a Baptist, but that's not the point. Just kidding, Lutheran friends and out there. My question is, have you been born again? Have you experienced the new birth that John chapter 3 is all about? The Pharisees, of which Nicodemus was one, had stubbornly resisted the truth about Jesus. They had rejected it. They'd become angered by it. They were hostile toward it. They would eventually crucify him. But for Nicodemus the Pharisee that day, that was a defining moment. And Jesus said with with great power to him, verse 11, I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? I want you to understand what Jesus was saying here. He's saying, Nicodemus, what you are asking is not some man's opinion about a trivial matter. That's not what's going on here today. You are asking about an issue of eternal truth that can only be rightly answered by someone of divine origin. Are you following me? 
What you are really asking, Nicodemus, is, am I just a man or am I God in human form? And Jesus responds to him by referring to himself with his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. Boy, don't miss this. Verse 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. You know what he was saying there? He's saying, Nicodemus, I'm not of this earth. I have come down from heaven. I am eternal God in a human body. And as such, Nicodemus, there must be only one response. And I love how he explains it to him. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, speaking of himself, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, the story that Jesus refers to here is one that Nicodemus would know very well. It's from Numbers chapter 21, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and and they began to be bitten by snakes and they were dying by the dozens, even the hundreds. And God directed Moses to have formed a, a bronze pole with the image of a snake on it. And they were to hold that pole up and to tell the people if they had the faith to look upon that, that image, that they would be healed. And that's exactly what happened. They looked and they were healed or they didn't look and they died. And Nicodemus knew that story, but he didn't understand that that story was a historical relation, a historical illustration of exactly what was taking place in front of his very eyes. That the one that that bronze serpent represented that would give life, would give physical life, was now being fulfilled in the spiritual realm that Jesus is the one to whom they could look and not just live physically for a few more years, but live forever, eternal life. Nicodemus, I'm the fulfillment of that story. It was an image, and I am the living fulfillment of that story you've known for all of your adult life. And then Jesus expresses to him, Nicodemus, my coming was the greatest expression of love that has ever been known. And he says it to him in these immortal words that you and I memorized as children. Verse 16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What Nicodemus heard from the lips of Jesus that day was the greatest expression of God's love for lost sinners like you and like me that has ever been spoken What a privilege for Nicodemus. And I want, I want to stop here after that, that 
wonderful verse and just say, if you're like me, you wish that John would have gone on to tell us that Nicodemus in that moment fell to his knees in repentance and faith and worship to Jesus, and he became a hero of the early church. But he doesn't. He doesn't. But I think looking back on that encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus that had taken place more than 50 years ago. When John writes the story, he's mindful it's not the story really of Nicodemus. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. And so, does Nicodemus then just disappear from the pages of Scripture? Does he do what Joseph, the husband of Mary, did. You remember Joseph? We saw him up until Jesus was 12 at the temple, and then guess what? Poof, he's gone. And we're just left to speculate. I mean, was that Nicodemus' only appearance, and we know nothing more about him? Well, thankfully, no. He had two more appearances in Scripture. Here's one. If you have your Bible, open it to John chapter 7, verse 45. While you're finding that, let me give you the context. John 7, 45. Uh, here in John 7, the Pharisees are ready to, to arrest Jesus and put him on trial and try to have him executed if Rome would comply. And so the Pharisees send out the, the temple guards. There's a little kind of uh, law enforcement force they had authority over in the temple. And so they send out their soldiers to arrest Jesus. The soldiers go, they find Jesus, they listen to him, and they come back empty-handed. So John seven forty five. when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? <laughs> and I love this next verse, verse 46. We have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. It was like, Listen, we heard him speak. There was no way we could arrest him. Well, that freaks the Pharisees out. Verse 47, have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Ah, but then verse 50, then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? He asked. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Now here's what I want us to understand. When Nicodemus spoke up in verse 51, I have no doubt that every head in the room of the Pharisees snapped in shock and surprise. Because for Nicodemus to speak up to confront the high priest and the Pharisees was a huge risk. I believe from that point on, Nicodemus was out there on a limb for Jesus. Well, there's just one final appearance of Nicodemus in the Scripture. I think it removes any doubt of how Jesus had come to mean everything to Nicodemus. After Jesus was brutalized, tortured, and crucified, the question was, who's going to take
take responsibility for this man's body? Who's going to care for the corpse? John chapter 19. We'll begin reading with verse 38. Following the crucifixion. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. Now look at this, verse 39. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. Now here's why this is so significant. Not only did he take responsibility along with Joseph for Jesus' body, but he brought at his own expense 75 pounds of expensive ointment. This was not what you did for an indigent person's body or even a wealthy person's body. This was a burial preparation appropriate for royalty. He prepared Jesus' body as if he were a king because I believe he had come to know Jesus was the king of kings and Lord of lords. What happened to Nicodemus after that? I wish the scripture told us, but extra biblical sources, that is historical writings that are not inerrant as scripture is, but have been written to give accounts. Extra biblical sources tell us that Nicodemus became a leader in the early church and later on in the first century was martyred for his faith. The Pharisees cast him out and he became a follower of Jesus. So what do we take away from this story of God's gift of love? Two next steps uh, according to where you are in your spiritual journey. Number one, if you have never been born again, here's my challenge. Don't let another Christmas pass without you embracing by faith the one who is God's gift of love. Jesus is the Savior. And if you'd like to dialogue about it, text BELIEVE to our Get Connected number, 281-343-3033 if you're watching online, or even here. If you'd like to, to dialogue about it, then text that and I or one of the other pastors will get back to you. Number two, and this is the majority of us, if you are a Christ follower, Thank him today for his love. Thank him today for his gift of love to us and pray that God would give you and I the boldness of Nicodemus. We all need God's gift of love because there's a hole in every human heart only God's love can fill. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you had for sinners such as us, undeserving, 
rebellious, unfaithful, and yet we have become the objects of your mercy, your grace, and your love. This Christmas season, we give you thanks and praise that the greatest gift of all has been delivered to sinners who can know you through faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen.